हेलो एवरीवन आई एम मधुसूदन आई एम द कोफाउंडर सीईओ ऑफ क्रेडिट बी एक मिनट रुक जाओ रेडी होने दो चलो ये कर लेते हैं दिस कुड बी अ ग्रेट इंट्रो हाय आई एम अक्षय हाय दिस इज सौरभ एंड यू आर लिसनिंग टू द फाउंडर थीसिस पॉडकास्ट वी मीट सम ऑफ द मोस्ट सेलिब्रेटेड स्टार्टअप फाउंडर्स इन द कंट्री एंड वी वांट टू लर्न हाउ टू बिल्ड अ यूनिकॉर्न Bajaj Finance, the largest listed lending NFC in India, has a market capitalization of 55 billion dollars, even though it owns just a small portion of the total market. This would have given you an idea of how massive the lending business opportunity is in India. Madhusudan E was working as an e-commerce manager for a global brand, helping them grow their online sales. When he came to the realization that if consumers were provided easy access to loans, then it would help increase the sales of the store. This insight led him to quit his job and start a lending fintech company, Credit B. Credit B is one of the very few lending fintechs that also has its own NBFC license. This episode of the Founder Thesis podcast is a masterclass in understanding unsecured lending to consumers. Madhusudan talks to Akshay Tat about starting up, building a strong product, building both demand and supply, and about the importance of risk management in a lending business. Listen on to get educated about all things lending. Oh yeah after my engineering i think i was totally core into software development r&d telecom that was my world but let's say 5 6 years into that i was more into product and business so that was a switch i think largely between 2013 till 16 that's when i came out 2016 when i came out to start the startup prior to that i was managing or heading this e-commerce vertical for a company called Huawei which was it's like the brand e-commerce store like how let's say Samsung would have its own samsung.com where they would be selling the products or the Xiaomi would have mi.com and stuff like that so it was a similar brand e-commerce store which i was leading for about 9 to 10 countries largely in southeast asia middle east and latin america so i was responsible for the business pnl of the entire business and what not so what was more interesting was the overall traveling what i was doing i was literally living on my suitcase i had to go around to all these countries introduction to that different clients and different people there were certain common factors what the customers are looking for and of course there were very regional specific things as well so that kind of led me to understand the people requirements and how there are certain things that the customer experience they are looking at the quality of experience which remains the same you grow you go any part of the world i think that's what is more appreciated by the customers while there are region specific stuffs what one has to look into but there were very common stuffs which one has to in their own businesses so that was a learning it's easier said than you experience it but those experiences can really strengthen your fundamentals and that's where i took this call of it's now or never because i was almost like 30 years old by the time okay. i would imagine that this experience is essentially like running a d2c brand where you're looking at everything from right. generating demand to serving the demand through shipping and logistics and handling returns and all of that i'm wondering why you chose fintech after this why not look at a d2c play how did the credit b idea originate as i told so this was 2013 14 15 and some part of 2016 during that time not just in india most of this southeast asian market or even in the latin american markets the only way somebody could get credit was through the credit card okay so the credit card was the only way what you can key in and then buy the products or shop online and you didn't have any other things 
So I started talking to many of the lenders with the overall view of trying to get them onboarded as a lending partner. So I could increase sales and whatnot. I was convinced with the idea because that will easily give you an uptick of 10-20% of your sales the moment the credit is available on the store. And now when I'm talking to all these guys who are Bajaj Finance of the world, who are there on the ground, pretty strong. And the real apprehension from all these guys is how do I underwrite people? How do I lend to a guy whom I have not even seen once? How entire this digitization of the process works and whatnot. The more and more I got into that and I looked at the markets in US and in China. So this entire fintech was growing at a very astronomical space. That triggered me to studying a lot about the Indian market, how we could do this entire lending digitally. So that's where I started spending more time. We came out with a clear idea of solving two things at that time. One is digitizing the entire loan process. Now, digital loans are the norm. I'm talking in 2016, where the process was still with a human intervention, there was a digital models. So digitizing the entire process was one of the key goals. The second goal was interestingly using a lot of alternate data models to underwrite the customers. So what we saw then was the overall bureau penetration, like your credit bureau penetration was roughly 20-25% towards the market. Rest 75% of the Indian market are not covered by these bureaus. Therefore, you need to really work upon a lot of alternate models to solve for it. I think these were the two problems what we wanted to solve, started building on this product and the product was an overnight success for us when, when, once we launched was it. Was it a B2B? Did you want to do it B2B? Like going to companies like Huawei and offering BNPL on their point of sale at the checkout or did you want to do direct to customer? No, no. So even idea was always D2C. So it should be direct to customer. So we wanted to always empower the customer to either take a loan or shop online or you utilize that particular amount for his education. So it was always the idea was D2C. So we were never on the B2B model or B2B2C, what one would say as a checkout financing model. I don't think that was the thought. See, end of the day, you own the customer, then you are the king. So that's how this particular market works. The more you are creating layers before you interact and claim that this customer is my brand customer, the interfaces are not really helping your this particular thesis. Though that would be a... Cash burn heavy approach, right? If you want to like directly acquire customers, like the customer acquisition would need a lot of cash burn. Did you anticipate it, it would need a lot of cash burn? Were you prepared for that or you discovered? Did. So initially, why? okay, let me give you some thoughts. 2018 is, although we started working mid of 2016, we conceptualized the product. We started uh, running it on a very small scale. One clarification. This is like unsecured personal loan. That was the core product. Yeah, unsecured personal loan, BNPL, is what we wanted to start with. BNPL would mean like at checkout, right? So were you doing that at no, checkout? Not necessarily. So now there are various versions of BNPL. For example, today, BNPL has multiple things. One is, of course, what you talked about, the checkout finance. The second is we have launched our card product, all right? So you provide a line onto the card and you put offers on top of the card and the card can be utilized. It becomes like an universal product for your entire BNPL problem. And you can go and swipe the card offline, online, across any merchants. So that's a different way approach of the BNPL. So the card what we launch is not a credit card, but very much acts as a credit card because there's a line that is there backing that particular card. 
and therefore so one could use it across the merchants and whatnot right so various ways of approaching that there's a third model as well we will we'll discuss later in our discussion but there are many models of approaching this entire bnpl piece so you launched as get a loan in five minutes something like that would have been the pitch since we were digitizing the entire loan process that time so there were many things that was not in place yet for example the kycs the overall or the digital kyc mechanisms were not in place or if you want to set up a, the, the e-NASH for auto debit and everything. So they were getting almost developed. India Stack itself was developing during that time. We, our intention was to ensure that ultimately we come out with a product which has a complete digital, but we started with some kind of a physical angle. So wherever the KYC is. One day, something like that. Yeah, something of that sort. So this is how we started. And, and during and that time, this was underwritten by whom? Were you underwriting it or? Yeah, yeah. so that was the entire idea. So we never acted as a a marketplace or a lead gen model. From the beginning, the idea was to underwrite because that was the, that's what we thought as a core essence of this business in terms of developing all those alternate models to underwrite because that was the USP of the business. And we started kind of... Then you would have needed an NBFC license to launch this? Yeah. So initially we partnered with an NBFC and we got our NBFC and by the onset of the business, we applied for our license and we got it in 2017 early. Early 2017, we had our NBFC. By that time, the business was also just taking baby steps. And within that time, we had our own NBFC in hand. How did you acquire customers? Was it like digital <laughs> channels? or? Yeah, that was an interesting part. So what we decided was, so since we were doing it digital and we wanted to go this route, went to many bankers to discuss about the idea and whatnot. Everyone's thought was, India is a country, nobody is going to pay you back. You guys are going to bust all your saving amount, the money or bootstrap funding, what you guys are doing to your business and whatnot. So what we were trying to do was that we wanted to start with a very controlled cohorts. What I mean by control cohort was, it was we did not launch in 16 and 17. We were not like pan India, pan customer, anybody can come and apply. That was not the um, uh, approach, but we started with the student community. So we started with some of the employee community. Yeah. Education and consumption loads. The students were actively buying laptops. They were buying, they wanted financing for their projects. Then their semester loans is what we had done it. Along with the parent, we were like underwriting for a bike loan and whatnot. So what happens here is that when you go after that particular student community, so the idea was that the marketing was almost zero. I'll tell you the idea here. So all the students are present in the same campus. Okay, so go to a campus. Then we used to have a campus ambassador or a, one of the students who come takes up a, a, the part-time job with us. And he would go to, he would knock to each of the student hostel rooms and then educate about what the product is and how they should go for and whatnot. So that's how the thing started. And your customers are always present in that particular campus. And then you could always go and meet them, understand with them. And the best part of that particular community was we used to incentivize them to f- provide as with the issues on the app, or if this app could be, the data could act or any other issues that they can report, we were incentivizing them. And students spent a huge amount of time in testing out that particular product. They'd come out with various issues and say that, yeah, aapka app may aise break or can be broken, it hangs here. So that the student involved method really helped us in making our app much more robust before we took it to the outside market. All right. So we were largely financing their semester loans, bike loans, along with the parent and some of the consumption like what the laptops. So 
there was that need the moment they come into the colleges they had this particular need and parents loved it because it was always offered as an EMI and that was pretty successful did you ask them to specify that i need a loan to buy a laptop or did you just tell them how much loan do you need and that money would get transferred well, to their account well, since it was student so there was at the point of transferring cash was limited so we never wanted to give out cash in their hands so the idea was that we are tied up with flipkart amazons of the world at the time and student would come and then basically provide us with the details of this is a specific product what he looks at and that product is what we used to kind of procure from flipkart and request flipkart we would do the delivery so we were financing flipkart rather than financing the student directly so it was always towards that purpose so i think that was pretty controlled way how we started this yeah and because it's going to the campus yeah. aesthetics of it is not too challenging oh, yeah going to a campus the pin code is very well known and when we started with all these the metro cities the elite colleges so all already there was a good amount of logistics to do the deliveries and what not so that's how the product there, itself there, there are so many uh, ifs and buts say what if they they receive a defective product they want to return and all of that so then they would come to you and then you would facilitate or how would all of that so it was always educated to them saying that so they would not pick the product they wouldn't come to us and say that i need a let's say a lenovo laptop so they wouldn't come and say that they would say that flip they would go to flipkart and they would basically go to that particular product and they used to copy that link and then paste it on our app it was a simple copy paste or share mechanism they used to share that particular link to our app so we would only go and order that specific item on flipkart and therefore it was always all the returns refunds and anything that they were looking for was through the flipkart and not with us so that education is pretty important when you deal with this kind of a bnpl scenario because there's always an element of confusing between who is the lender who is the e-commerce marketplace who where the product is Hmm. yeah yeah so i think that's what we did because so by the step this they were actually like a hack together bnpl approach like. yeah yeah so that's how we started and this gave us enough time to experiment on our alternate data models because of all i'm trying to underwrite student was more like without any income so there is no income print and therefore now you are looking at the parent and then you are trying to underwrite them indirectly but select like pan of the parent and like income proof from the parents and stuff like that or like how would you what kind of what was your approval mechanism yeah so it was always dependent on the family income but what we were trying to achieve when we were doing with the student was to basically tackle the fraud okay so the fraud that could happen on the app see end of the day it's an app interface where somebody comes and interacts your engines decide that okay you want to give a loan or not nobody is sitting and evaluating that so now frauds can happen in terms of impersonation i use somebody else's mobile i use somebody else's data and then i do it so then how do you prevent that kind of a fraud so it could be a simple impersonation second thing is a group fraud so i collected pan across some people and now i try to basically get into the system or hack into the system and then get along so this is what we incentivize students heavily you please break our system you break the system and then the product will be free for you so whatever you have got it that will be free so therefore there was an extensive testing that happened on the this one to mitigate the fraud so that's what we were largely achieving again let me tell you this if you could mitigate fraud digital fraud that could happen on your lending app more or less you are underwriting 50% you are done with that rest of the underwriting is once i have understood that let's say akshay has come on to my app the moment i just ascertain that it's just akshay what is claiming to be and the documents what is given is does belong to akshay and let me now start the evaluation that's 50% of the work any fraud happens is before that so that's something what we are trying to mitigate by this particular pilot 
what we did with the students yeah mm, amazing okay and how much did you uh, how many products did you lose this way <laughs> not much a student market was pretty, i wouldn't have a count on top of mine but it was 0.5% was the entire loss rate including the credit loss and what not which was pretty beautiful yeah pretty healthy in terms of what it happened but it is a pilot right so there is a only so many campuses there's only so many good co- colleges we are not like going randomly to any college and everything so we selected a good amount of campuses where you have these kids with some intelligence and then they also can do enough feedback what was your collection strategy collections may see it was largely that students paid back and we used to anyways always there was a parent who was a guarantor to the loans of all the semester loans or bike loans and everything although student kind of front faced as a user of that particular credit for his education purpose or for his vehicle purpose or anything but ultimately the one who was responsible was always the parent so therefore any collections was with the parent otherwise it would really look wise to go to a student where he himself is not earning yeah and they would do like a bank transfer the parents would do that like always there was zero cash collection process we never collected cash and they used to pay on the idea was that largely what happened is it was directly paid by the students they used their parents debit cards and then they paid it and what not the parent coming and paying by themselves was very limited although they used all the resources from the parents but parents themselves were paying less because student would go and introduce the app to the parent yeah. dad i want this they the products have here with yeah online payment and all of that <laughs> correct correct so mm-hmm. in that way it was always front ended by the student but backed by the parent yeah. and you have to bear that 2% intercharge rate if someone is paying back the loan through debit card then the payment gateway charge of 2% No so what happened is the debit card prices were slashed heavily during that time as well yeah and one more thing was since these were like the ticket size was hardly about like 10000 15000 rupees the emi was less than 2000 rupees so the charges whatever was applicable for is for the emis who were which were more than 2000 rupees so those charges were pretty minimal at the time so to be really worried about and then even the bank transfer was one of the mechanism what they were doing it there also it was on a the average emis were 1500 2000 bucks under 2000 so that was working pretty much without much of the extra charges which has to be borne so now let's move forward to 2018 so by 2017 you have got an nbfc license yeah. but how NBFC. are you funding it how are you giving out loans are you taking debt to give out loans or yeah yeah i think the models have evolved so it was an hybrid approach what we followed there is a platform which integrates with multiple lending partners or nbfcs let's say so one of the participating nbfc is our own in-house nbfc so this is a set of bunch of nbfcs which are lending on that particular marketplace and the marketplace is the one which owns the app and that's how the larger idea was so at that time we had one or two partners we the scale was pretty small we were doing about 20 25 crores or so on a monthly basis which was largely funded by rnbfc then there were two more partners and we were doing the supply side of the stuff and that's how the thing started all right who, who does underwriting then if the nbfc is funding it yeah. they, they rely on your underwriting or no not exactly so basically the way it has to happen is it was a joint underwriting so there used to be multiple contours and multiple the underwriting guidelines what nbfc would basically come out and then put it in place saying before we even start the engagement saying that this is the set of customers what we are looking at this is what should be the hygiene factors and the platform would basically deal largely with all the fraud 
issues. So the fraud, digital fraud things has to be solved by the platform. So that's what the platform was looking at. And then since it was a digital integration, so they had their own risk engine at the NBFC end and our risk engine basically, which is detecting the fraud and what, which would do the initial filtering and then push the cases to this particular risk engine of the NBFC, they would give an approval. And then the loan is free. Although it it happens totally real time so that the customer feels, you know, so probably everything is seamless, but it's always that there is a specific digital parts of the issues are solved, mitigated by the platform and the underwriting on the credit itself happens with, the, of course, so the platform would pull the bureau reports and whatnot, and then pass it on to the NBFC. So they would look at the contours, what they are looking at it, and then they would say, respond with whether they want to go ahead or not. The bureau report was also being handled by you only. Got it. Okay. And therefore, the interest rate would not be shown to the customer before he finishes submitting his KYC, right? After KYC only, the risk engine will give an interest rate. No, this we had kept it already pre-decided. So there were buckets of the customers who are created different depending on the risk profile. For example, somebody has a bureau score of 750 and above, somebody has between 700 and 750. We don't deal with the customers who are having a bureau score of six, 700 and below. We only deal with the people who are 700 and above. So there are certain buckets. And then there are new to credit guys who, are, who don't have any kind of a bureau footprint. Then there is a region specific. There are metro cities, there are non-metro. Then there is, within non-metro, there is tier one, tier two. Then now it comes with the profession saying that salaried, self-employed. Within the salaried, what kind of profession? Then within the self-employed, what nature of self-employment? So based on all these things, there is a metrics-based pricing what comes out. Basically what you call it as a risk-based pricing, right? So this risk-based pricing is primarily agreed between the NBFC and the platform what is involved. And this, the only thing is now what happens is to bucket that particular customer to that specific metrics where he falls into in terms of risk and then the similar pricing will go. So there is no price negotiation or price discovery that would happen on the spot there because this is something like it's a layout. NBFC can only say approve or deny. That is all, like not their interest rate because you, the platform would bucket the person into a category and then the NBFC can say approve or deny. Just let me add a little bit about it. So what happens today for us is our own NBFC does co-lending with the partner NBFC, right? So there is a platform which does all the fraud detection and whatnot. And post that, once the cases are passed, it is actually passed to two NBFCs. There is my own in-house NBFC, which does a co-lending along with the partner NBFC. In such ways, we have about 12 to 13 co-lending partners. When I, It is not a platform participating, participation, but they're co-lending with, the, with my own NBFC. So once the records files are passed on to, it is underwritten by two NBFCs. One is it is underwritten by my own NBFC and then you know, the partner NBFC, we jointly underwrite and we provide the loan. It can be even like a 10,000 rupee loan or 20,000 rupee loan, but about 80% of it will be funded by the partner NBFC. About 20% is funded from my in-house NBFC, but it's a co-lending arrangement. And again, there is a beautiful master guideline about co-lending practices by the regulator. And that's what we follow there. Yeah. Okay. So this gives NBFC faith because you have skin in the game. Oh, very much because it's jointly underwritten by two NBFCs. Uh, Therefore, we are taking the in-house NBFC takes the equivalent risk of whatever the yeah. other industry is taking. So yeah, yeah, there's a yeah. risk in the game. 
at which the nbfcs are participating yeah but uh, collections is handled by the platform the nbfc the co-lender doesn't need to bother about that. he does it's very specific to each of the co-lending partner so for example so there are nbfcs which are strong at a specific region and so maybe the initial collections would be handled by my own nbfc so largely what happens is the collections is also done by my own nbfc so the platform is more of for us let's say it's a lead generator for us. most of the activities of the lending kyc or even the collections happens from my nbfc because we are a co-lending partner with the other nbfc and the partner nbfc see for example there are very region specific regionally established nbfc so in such regions we leverage on their collection as well so it's a when you come as a co-lending partner it's not just on the credit front but also on the collections and the operations front as well and that's what where we leverage depending on each of our strengths right probably when the it's in the 0 to 30 bucket then you would do it the moment it crosses 30 then you would pass it on to the partner who is strong very dynamic you know, so pretty dynamic even in those aspects on how we deal with dynamic on in terms of the products what has been given every lender every nbfc has their own preferences in terms of how they would try to get this engagement we try to derive certain standard soft but yeah it's specific because they also look at their own comforts there and you could have also gone the other way where you just build your own book take debt you could for example pick up debt at 10% or and lend it at 18% and that 8% spread is yours so why not go that way why go the co-lending way Yeah see the idea here is that the way the, the debt ecosystem that works in India is collective confidence one has to get into for example if you are just i'll give you an example right uh, let's say you have a single nbfc and then you are just raising that any lender who comes on to your balance sheet lender so he wants to look at how the company is performing what's the process are running so how diligent are they in terms of complying with the processes and what yeah. not yeah, yeah. so they will do their own underwriting before giving you loan <laughs> yeah so now the idea here is that once what the leverage that the platform provides to us is that since we have a great names the names like tata capital which is coming live on the this one so which recent announcement was punawala fincorp right so it's from the punawala group which went live on the platform there is cholamandalam group so when those guys are operating because on the platform so they are party to all the processes what we are doing it on a regular basis they are party to the fund management they are party to the credit cost what is happening so there's a good amount of authentication of not just the credit cost or one could state but also to the processes what is followed how much diligently the company is working and what not right so that gives a pretty holistic confidence to any new incoming debt partner right so end of the day this business one has to solve for supply and you have to solve with multiple nbfcs banks and the collective confidence is much much higher than having a single book end of see we are not sbi right so we are not a brand like sbi we are in the process of building a brand and in that process the confidence from the overall debt ecosystem should be pretty strong and that only comes in once there is a good transparency in terms of your the processes what you are running the way you are dealing with the business which comes pretty strong once you have all these third party people understand and then participate in your process If you like to hear stories of founders then we have tons of great stories from entrepreneurs who have built billion dollar businesses just search for the founder thesis podcast on any audio streaming app like spotify gana apple podcasts and subscribe to the show
But how did you fund it? Even to run your own NBFC, you still need funds, right? So, You're only doing 20% of the loan, but that 20% is also a big amount. So how you... Yeah, so we have 56 debt partners on my NBFC. We have banks which has lended, Bank of Baroda, S-Bank, HSBC, IA Bank, Cotec, any of the banks. And then there are corporate NBFCs, likes of Vivriti Capital, Northern, any of these corporate, in this one, AU Small Finance Bank, FinCare Small Finance Bank, right? So there's a bunch of those people. Then there are corporate NBFCs. We issue bonds and debentures, what we call it as non-convertible debentures. We raise capital from that. We have ECB, external commercial borrowing, what we have raised. So this is a pretty hybrid approach what we follow in capitalizing our own NBFC and as well as multiple partners on the platform. So as I told, it's not that we participate alone. It's the entire ecosystem that comes into play. 56 debt partners, 12 to 13 of co-leading partners, you would roughly say about like 70 partners who are working on the supply side of trying to cater to the demand which is going on monthly basis so that ecosystem is the basis to do this business yeah so you have not diluted anything so far like it's purely no we did what last round was our series b round last round was almost a 145 mil raise by the likes of premji invest who came in one of our investors then there is tpg backed newquest was the investor but it has been acquired by now by tpg we have banks like icici bank is one of our investor uh, they're the equity investor so largely if you look at it it's a pe funds and the large financial houses or even the asset management companies like so they are the investors so it's pe and mutual funds banks financial houses so these are the guys who are our equity investors and that's how we capitalize through the equity yeah Okay, okay. okay. Tell me the whole fundraise journey so far. What was your seed round and whom did you raise it from all the way till the series B? Seed round was pretty interesting. So there was this particular company which was doing lending. So they are US listed, NASDAQ listed company. And they came in and they wanted to look at a strategic partnership, which we said no. And they were looking like take, funding us to make us as a branch of their company and whatnot. But anyways, so we were like, we are not into that game. So we are largely looking to run with our own journey. So the seed funding started. We did raise about one and a half million dollars as a seed money. So somewhere, so we were too lucky with this that. Friends and uh, family, was it? Like this one and a half? Not friends and family. So this was, uh, the, these guys are Southeast Asian market guys who are listed in NASDAQ. During my business, uh, I had contacted them to come and be party to that particular e-commerce what I talked about. So then I was talking very heavily about how big is Indian market and whatnot. So they had an understanding that, yeah, this guy is pretty serious about it. And then he has done enough of work. So that came out about one and a half million dollars. That was our seed money. Then it was followed by this MI, Xiaomi. So MI guys, so what happened is at one point of time, we were one of the largest sellers of their phones on a platform. So we wanted to understand every other day we used to go to their warehouse and then say that we need more phones. And they kind of a uh, little bit intrigued ki, why do you guys phone? Of course, there's a business, but uh, is this ever ending? Then they understood our models and they thought it's a very interesting model. So it was, they invested in us. So that was our series A kind of round. And that was about, I think we raised close to about six, seven million at the time. And last round was with PI, Premji Invest, Motilal. And we also had to give exit to MI, uh, Xiaomi people. So we gave them a total exit. Now it's a different cap table what we have. So that was the Series C, sorry, Series B what we did. And then we should be out in the market for our Series C fundraise. But anyways, so this is how the journey has been. So your Series C would probably be a unicorn round, right? Like you, you would already 
be like considering the last round was 145 mil so the next round would obviously be like a unicorn yeah so i hope so so i'm keeping my fingers crossed uh, uh, definitely you know so we are looking for that yeah okay amazing okay yeah let's go back to the evolution of the business like 2018 you started doing lending uh, on the platform so by the time we, the product itself become totally digital when it became when we achieved the totally digital by piloting with multiple control cohorts we launched it in 2018 it was an overnight success so credit b was launched and then totally overnight success that month on month the growth was over 100% we were running out of money to lend that was how the growth was there wasn't enough money to lend out mm. so we were the early movers and then we gave out this product and then customers were the word of mouth was pretty high so the growth was tremendous so there was a very good early mover advantage for us at that time so how did you fix that so you had that kind of hack together solution of where you place the order how did you fix that oh yeah the way we did that was there was another model what we started at the time we were giving either we were loading the money to the amazon wallet of the customer or flip wallet of the customer or there was a gift voucher which they could which was attached to their specific flipkart account so once they go to check out by themselves that gift would be that either the wallet amount would come in or the gift voucher would come in so they would never be able to encash it so this is how we had fixed particular problem at that time and also we started with the personal loan all right so these were the two products what we launched the credit be with as yeah, i told it would be for salaried individuals salaried and self employed so working right. capital kind of a line and salaried so this is how we started it so now i used to just and keep that one loan would be like the full amount is transferred to the bank account like yeah, they apply yeah, for a yeah. one lakh loan they get one and that was not for student so by that time we were done with the student while we did the pilots and where the product was there so this was to the open market now open market anyone everyone could come into the app and what not that is how the app was prepared all right so otherwise i would say that if we had not gone through that journey of trying to pilot it with the control cohorts do enough testing it would have been just a the cash would have been out of the banks from us yeah. come back it's the mistakes would have been very costly at that stage yeah, yeah, yeah. quite quite a cost now i'll give you an idea right the way we were lending at that time was that i used to only keep the next month salary of my employees as the savings of the company the rest all money is out in the market so whatever you collect you just again lend out at in one specific month And there was this before uh, the mi investment before the xiaomi investment or yeah, okay. yeah before the mi investment so that's how we are doing it at one specific month one of the lenders had promised saying that he would give out some loan to our nbfc based on that i had even lended out the salary what i had kept it. and that did not come in so that promise that date it was missed by the lender i was totally running out of money then the next month i had to kind of give a big lecture to my employees saying that yeah it was like fifth of the month generally first is when we create it Fifth is over. Everyone is now talking about ki kya ho raha hai, kya ho raha hai bolke. And now I was in a situation where I have to say that business is doing great. We are doing great, but I just lended out all the money. <laughs> so I don't have money to. And then the employees and it was a small uh, team at the time. About we were just about forty, fifty folks at the time. Everyone is talking within themselves. Ki. So now I had to do that. And of course, by tenth, I was able to arrange the money again and then start the salary. That happened for one month. and never did that mistake ever so always i showed that ki bhai employees ka 6 mahine ka salary to savings mein rakho this kind of an approach is not able to justify or nobody will appreciate what you did so anyways then the, so once the equity rounds came in and then there was also the debt community started trusting us so the multiple more partners who added and today i think we are on the reverse reverse side of the maybe the supply is so sufficient for us that now we are changing the demand 
Okay. We invested. What was your monthly dispersal? I think we had almost hit, I don't know if we had closer to 70, 80 crores monthly. Wow. Or maybe a hundred, some somewhere that around hundred would be the idea. Which so is, that's what I mean, scale. from a capital efficiency perspective, it's phenomenal. Like with just one and a half million fundraise, you scaled it up to hundred crore monthly dispersal is amazing. It was at a very good scale. So there were multiple partners who were we had raised debt. There was good amount of debt that was there. And then there were partners. I think somewhere that I wouldn't really, this happened in what, 2018. So when they came in, so that was the series A around what we concluded. Okay. Okay. So how did the trajectory change after Xiaomi? What The evolution post the Xiaomi investment? Tell oh, me. as I told, so post that, I think they did, they both Xiaomi and Shunwei, their investing arm, right? I think both of them put together had infused close to about like 15 to 20 mil. So both MI and this one. So it was well capitalized now. We had an equity of more than 100 crores and we could leverage that further. So we were doing almost, so just before the pandemic, March 2020, we were doing about 800 crores of lending on a monthly basis. That's the scale what we were reaching. And then that's where we started with our series. And so wherein all these people came in and then we went for a 150 mil fundraise again that further capitalized the, the company and there was sufficient funds. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Like when a pandemic hit, then how did that impact you? What was the pandemic? And by 2020, the product lines were the same? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We were doing BNPL and the PS. So those are our primary products, what we were doing it. And uh, the business was all good. We were profitable by 2019. Yeah. FI19, we were already profitable. FI20, we were profitable. But March, life was looking like a fairy tale story. Things are all in place. Our credit costs are at control and whatnot. Then happens the COVID. So the March 23rd, 2020, when there was a total lockdown was announced. The exposure, what got impacted for us at the time was uh, the disbursements, what we had done from September 19 till March 20, roughly about 4,600 crores. So I come from a middle-class family. These numbers were still very pretty large, right? Now, that's the exposure, what we have done in this last six months, which was exposed to the COVID and it was a nightmare. It was a state of confusion. One doesn't know what would be the state of this. Everybody, everyone else is confused and everyone else is just giving different theories. I was doing this kind of a, not exactly a podcast, but it was more of a panel discussions. We all went into homes and then the only thing what we were doing was coming onto Zoom and then starting talking to each other. I think the only discussion was Ki hoga kya bolke, right? So and everyone is giving their own theories, their own strategies and, and whatnot. I think it was the next repayments that started happening in the month of April, which gave us the confidence that we are saved because we didn't know how many people would turn out and pay back and whatnot. There were moratoriums we had to offer to our customers, which is roughly about six months of a holiday period in terms of the EMI payment, which has to be offered. Now, despite we offering all that and everything, so there was a good amount of customers who came and started paying back. And that was a relief for us saying that we have done a good job in identifying the customers rightly. And that's how the things were. All right. So we ended up generally we have a loss rates of three and a half percent. So on any steady state month, the COVID wave one we had to take a hit of close to six and a half percent. So roughly it doubled. It took some time to come to that six and a half percent, but so it, the impact as of today when I see it, it's literally a little bit doubled, close to double our usual delinquency. That wasn't too bad for us because there was enough profits what we had generated. We had a good capitalization of with both equity and debt and the profits what we had created prior to that particular COVID was able to take care of all the 
losses what we'd incur because of this covid impact and in that phase once we started getting the sense of it i think things were back into normalcy again the, everyone started ramping it up then covid wave to happen it wasn't as bad as wave one so uh, typical 3.5% went till about 5 6% 5 5.5% that wasn't much we knew the drills we knew what happens so the customers will get their confidence back they would come back after the lockdowns back to normalcies and that's what happened and then they start paying back so that particular covid wave two was almost negligible to know what we had wave three was zero impact either from the credit cost perspective business perspective i think people have basically understood that these waves might happen but business as usual or life as usual has to continue and not to react over dramatic over those issues so i think by wave three there was a very matured industry matured customers who are already there in the market okay and have you launched a credit card product also yeah yeah so we launched last august and in this close to about 7 8 months of operations we have already issued close to about 1.4 million cards to the customers monthly we are issuing almost like 250k cards 250k new cards is what we are issuing on a monthly basis so that product has really picked up pretty well since we launched Uh, tell me about how that works how does the product work this is like a say like any other of the new age fintech cards it's the same as that like a slice or all of these yeah see the segments are different so the idea here is that see if you only look at the product be it be a card product or the pl product i think these products are there for hundreds of years so at least the, the overall pl itself is there probably thousands of years the card may be about like 50 60 years phenomenon so i don't the real innovation is not on the product itself what we have launched but the innovation comes into how much of what kind of customers have you launched so for me my customer base is mid india when i say mid india more than 75% of my customers are from non metro cities middle class when i say middle class the people who have a annual salary of about 5 6 lakh rupees so those are that's the middle class mid income mid india middle class so this is a segment what we catered compared to many other competition probably they are after the metro salaried segments so everyone has their own segments with which they are doing it so the ones who are doing it for the salaried metro customer base the focus would be very much on the convenience because they already have three four cards from the banks now or somebody is adding it as a fourth card so now you need to really put in a lot of convenience factor a differentiating factor and what not so now when you come to my segment more than 85 86% of the crowd or my customers never had a credit card in life so i am the first time issuer of a credit card so that's a different ball game because overall credit card penetration itself in india is about 3 3 1/2% maybe and what i believe is that there is a good 12-15% of the population what can be covered with a credit card and that's the opportunity probably all the card guys are after it's just that we have split our customers very differently that my course essence is solving for this particular set so i'm after them so somebody is after the salaried set so that's how the game is played out yeah and for a customer what is the experience like they do the kyc then you decide the limit like you're getting a card with 30000 limit or 60000 limit yeah so again the we provide a credit line so largely and card is just a it's a prepaid card so it's not exactly a credit card but in the hands of the customer it is more like experience is like a credit card but per se it's a prepaid card all right so with the credit line backing the customer so why not because that means your money is blocked then even if the customer hasn't spent it yet for a prepaid instrument your money is blocked with that customer yeah. so the idea here is that the line gets that the card has to be managed entirely through your app so therefore you basically load money through your app so that it gets more so we on the fly 
or on demand is when the lines are created rather than you load it and always keep it alive so it's an interaction between the card and the app itself so that's as good as you're requesting for a personal loan or a kind of and then that is available on the card all right so that's how that particular functions and the interest becomes payable only once they transfer it to the card or once they swipe the card like when do they have to start the there is a interest fee pre- period for about there is a 45 40 days so if they are using that particular product so our incomes are largely from the mdr incomes what we take we treat it as a personal loan only when they withdraw the cash otherwise as long as they are utilizing it swiping it or purchase it typically provides them interest fee period for about 40 days yeah 30 plus 10 days is where the interest free period actually lies yeah okay okay but why not just issue a credit card only why uh, is there a regulatory reason for that or because that would be frictionless right for a consumer so the idea here is that credit card itself is a product what the banks offer it and probably then in that case the underwriting is from the bank in terms of providing that one what we provide is a credit which is underwritten by the nbfc so that's basically why we do a prepaid card with the credit line offer and not okay. a credit card product okay got it got it. but, but uh, so there's no bank partner for this instrument the prepaid there is a bank partner so this is a card which is backed by pi wallet and therefore rbl bank is our partner there what is pi wallet so there is a the cards are basically attached to the pi wallet and it's a prepaid, prepaid instrument okay yeah prepaid instrument so that is offered by the bank and it's a co-branded card with rbl bank and the lines are provided to that particular pi wallet and anyway, so this is the back end of how we deal with this okay and it would be like a rupee or a mastercard or a visa like visa card we are today on visa network because you are underwriting so therefore this is the way to offer this to customers whereas that yeah. traditional credit card needs to be underwritten by a bank correct correct yes and also somewhere we want to have the control via the app and not just an independent product as a card so therefore the, they both interact together well for our purposes okay, okay. what is your dispersal split so you have three products as i understand you have the ppi wallet through a card is one product then there is a traditional personal loan product where money is transferred and the third is the voucher like you finance the voucher so what is the split between these three i think 75% is pl product about 20% 20 22% would be on the card product roughly about 2 3% would be on the bnpl product considering card is not bnpl but card also is serving for the bnpl but non card bnpl would be about like another couple of percent and i saw that this is zero cost emi for this e voucher so th- is that because the partner say amazon or flipkart they are certain incomes which uh, where we make up our revenue and this would be like three installments paid we give three installment depending on what's the ticket size of the voucher there are people who even buy iphones which is a lakh plus product and therefore that has to be even split close to about 9 months 12 months otherwise if the product ticket size is at about like 15000 20000 it goes anywhere between 3 and 6 months for us the average is at about 6 months the overall average for our pl product or anything is at about 6 months okay so uh, would you say that uh, data is a moat for you the underwriting so the overall segment to which we underwrite so that's the moat because we don't find a lot of competition with the segment what we deal with although there are look at this proposition right so the moment you go to the salaried super prime metro customer your cacs are blowing up your ability to price them is pretty low because there's too many competition and even the banks are offering multiple products 
So what is easier there is a risk management is pretty easy to manage in that segment. But the path to revenue, path to profitability is always a question. All right. On the other hand, what we solve for the segment is quite contrary. So non-metro, self-employed, middle class. So that segment is almost quite a wide segment, almost 400 million people, what we estimate who are trade-worthy, whom can be served in that particular segment. But what the, that brings in the complexity, right? So the complexity of underwriting, the complexity of managing your credit cost and everything. So since we solve for the complexity and then we have built these engines to underwrite them, almost we have underwritten over 40 million customers through these engines and therefore the engines become more efficient the more data that they are crunching and that's the kind of moat what we have created in solving for that particular segment what i would say is that lending as such is not a single app business or it's not a winner take all kind of a market because across the globe you would not find only one bank in one country so there are always any country you take it up there are multiple banks the reason for that is there are different needs what each of them serve there is a different niche what each of the banks and that's a similar case in India as well although uh, from a very broader perspective it might look like there's so many apps and then they're just trying to doing the same PL product there's the same card product but what everyone is trying to find is their own niche where they are solving and that's the differentiator yeah how does your risk underwriting algorithm work what are some of those counterintuitive learnings you might have had about risk underwriting uh, obviously i know a lot of it would be proprietary but if you can share some stuff around that no i think so let me put it this way let's take that the, the more easy way of trying to underwrite was why not if there is a bureau score which is one yeah. of the very key uh, determinant of stuff but in um, your case i'm guessing most of your audience would not have a bureau score right more than 90% of my customers have a bureau score of 700 and above. Okay, okay that's how it is. New to credit audience is just 10%. Yeah, 10% on my book, yes. On my age. So now what happens here is that even with the bureau score, so let's say I would give you one example, right? So the guys who are between, let's say, some range, anything, we can pick it up, something like 750 to 770 is supposed to pay back and behave better than, let's say, 700 to 730. Okay. So just by going by the logic of the scores, what if it has reversed? So what if that is reversed for a case, what we find when we have dealt with this large community of people, about 40 million guys, what we have underwritten, about 6 million of the guys have taken the products from us and those ranges have differed. So now the idea is that even though we take that, then there is a need for us to develop our own scorecard because even I don't want to blame the bureau saying that they are not doing a good job, but the idea here is that they are Nobody can give one single score for entire India. I can give a score for this particular people, but not the, the India is a very diversified, dynamic ecosystem. You cannot put one score and say that these are all good. So for my customer base, the bureau score mapping actually is therefore I need to have a different scorecard, which kind of based, let's say I even have about 20 scorecards, which makes the decision. I'm just talking about a bureau based scorecard and the need for it. Because these differences are there, I have my own scorecard, which kind of further splits and then gives a proper range of proper behavioral based scoring to that particular person. So now once such things happens, it, it these comes as a moat. So otherwise, anybody who can come in and then take 750 and then say that, yeah, 750 kilo just they do. Uh, it doesn't work that way. So if it goes for that, probably the delinquencies would be double for us. You have a score from 1 to 100 or 1 to 800 or something like that. Like, how does it work? <laughs> See, I think every credit underwriting models have several scorecards. Now, it all comes down to whether you want to just rep represent a single one score and say that this is the overall ultimate score. And it may not be necessary for a lender who is trying to give one score because we are not communicating that score 
as a result outcome to either the customer or to any external agencies for example like all the credit bureaus have to give one score although they will have multiple scorecards at their own end but ultimately they all put an effort to come with that one score so what happens or what goes into the different scorecards are so there are something like the fraud basis scorecard we what we call it as an anti fraud scorecard so this has nothing much to do with whether a person is basically has eligible or not eligible it is to mitigate whether the in digital lending what happens is you don't see the customer like how we are chatting together today we are seeing face to face i know that it's akshay he is responding to me so now it's a device and the customer who are interacting with each other now the customer may be totally different from what is he, he or she claiming to be or or they may be the same person but the data may not be matching to what they claim to be for example i let's say there is no not akshay but somebody else is claiming to be akshay so that becomes one fraud there is impersonations that happen wherein somebody is trying to have access to for whatsoever reason they might have access to kycs of some other people and they are trying to do that and generally the looking at the households sometimes a man of the family has access to his mother father who are little bit aged their kyc documents or he might have access to his spouse he or she might access to ha- have the spouse data they may not be totally fraud in nature but idea also comes into line that ki when i'm talking about my spouse it's as good as i'm talking about myself a overall understanding also will be there so those are impersonations then comes is a group frauds where some of the guys get together and try to do the frauds then there are software frauds or a bots which are used to do the fraud so that basically has to be recognized early and then they have to be rejected or put into bay so that comes as an anti fraud scorecard so that has nothing to do with your bureau based scorecard all right so now the next thing comes is an income estimator right so there is i'll just give you an example now for a salaried person it becomes all the more easier to understand what is his income because there is a bank statement available and then you would have an idea about what's the salary that they are drawing because there is an input credit that happens to his accounts on all the timing and what not but now you take a nature of a self employed person with the self employed nature what happens is that So with the self employed nature imagine this there is a kirana dukan so the kirana dukan has a lot of transactions happening via the cash cash is still a major economy in terms of transactions that happens in the mid india level and now you have a lot of surrogate methods that you one needs to develop to understand what could be the overall income and what not so there is no accurate way of trying to say probably sometimes a lot of this kirana dukan owner himself may not know ki how much was the input and output he has a broader idea of how much the sales happened and what not but they might have not have had a ledger which is accurate and everything so everything comes as an estimation right so then income estimator is a model that comes out and pro- probably gives a scorecard on what is claimed by a customer saying that let's say a customer comes in and says that he earns about 40000 rupees on a monthly basis now the income estimator model has to be run to understand whether that how much are we off from our estimations from the surrogate methods and provide a scorecard saying that uh, is my estimation closer to that the self stated income of a person or not so that comes as an that particular scorecard over there then so th- these are various different things where the scorecards itself evolve and then there are multiple things comes as a strategy scorecards which takes two three scorecards as an input and add few more rules or few more pointers to that and then that becomes one of the strategy scorecards generally involve two three more scorecards and then put its own logic or thing and provides a scorecard so each of the aspects has to be defined so first is on the fraud angle the second is on the estimation of the cash flows the third is on the ability to pay how much is the kind of indebted 
or whether he has enough of cash flows that he can pay back or not so that comes as a ability to pay estimations then comes your as i last time probably we talked about a bureau based scorecard because the exact bureau may not be working for every specific set of a customers then comes the willingness to pay back looking at his own repayments both on us and offers so how is he behaving on the uh, on our own platform versus how one is behaving on the outside platform so that becomes as a willingness to pay a scorecard so these are different scorecards that that we that always come into play and those scores are largely used by these what we call it as risk policies which use that particular score number and then feeds into a decision tree to either accept reject or maintain the same credit lines what has been offered so that's how a typical risk modeling or a risk engine works and most of the fintechs would give you an simple and an idea about how this works as i stated but what really makes a difference for any specific company would be while this is all theory so the these model scorecards only behave greatly once you are fed with the quantum of data right so the quantum of data really matters you could develop a scorecard and probably you just tested out with 5000 10000 customers that may be a very limited data for this scorecard to start predicting versus somebody who has tested with a million customers data versus with tens of millions 30 40 million customers data so it it varies totally so that's the mode the theory of developing the scorecards or the risk model can be given to you by any chief risk officers of any company or it can be taught in any of your data science classes somebody who has done his masters in data science would give you the similar outlay of how it works but what really matters is have you how much of data have you fed into these models so that they are behaving and then predicting accurately and that information is when it starts making sense and that becomes a moat for the companies versus which is a grown up company versus a mature company versus a bootstrapped or just at a very nascent level of growing companies so what i would basically leave you with is that any structured format of data is always important for underwriting models and whether it comes as your main business line main business functions or you depend on somebody else to get that particular data for example let's say there are even the pay later products for example there are flipkart's pay later product or amazon's pay later products all right so that totally rely on the customer experience on their platforms how much they have bought what are the returns ratios and what is the value of average value of their orders frequency of orders and what not so that data is all the way critical again to underwrite and they use that particular data to underwrite data is the king so now it all depends on how you collect that data but you cannot discount the kind of data what is available with each of these business models What is the average ticket size of loans on your platform? So average for, amount of loan yeah. per lender. So for salaried, I think the average would come out close to about like fifty thousand rupees. For self-employed, it would be close to about like twenty-four, twenty-five thousand rupees as an average that comes in. And we have also have a BNPL product what we run through the card and everything. So there it could be like sub ten thousand. Those are more of purchase finance and everything what we do it. so generally the financing goes towards some of the items that are bought and everything so that particular product may have about sub 10000 kind of credit lines okay got it so you told me last time that now supply is no longer a constraint demand is a constraint wouldn't this mean that you should go below 700 scores like you currently told me you have a cut off of 700 plus bureau score and only 10% of your borrowers are new to credit so considering that you need to ramp up demand wouldn't these yeah. metrics so, need to change I'll give you one idea i don't know if i in what context probably i gave that idea demand is a constraint what probably i would have given a context is that we have solved for supply side all right so because of the overall platform side what we are there so any month we are ready to even serve 
the demand what we are anticipating for let's say six months from now on and that is the shape every lender has to be i am not basically saying about the constraint on demand because india is a very growing economy there's a huge pool of customers who are coming into the it's largely an young population so every time you have people coming into the economy who are financially can be given a credit and whatnot and that particular thing i don't see there is any demand constraint as such but while the demand is there unless you have a supply side solved you will never be able to meet such demands so probably i would have given a context about how well or how prepared are we in terms of solving that supply side stuff now coming to the your next question why not below 700 kind of a folks and then so why only go for that let's say everyone has their own model of whom they are serving and whatnot so we are largely fine to serve the new to credit market rather than to say the <clears throat> somebody who has already proven subprime so a new to credit is probably the guy who has even graduated from let's say iit iim and then today he has joined his job maybe with the top four consulting firm or in a in an in in investment banking job but he is also a new to credit so versus somebody probably who has uh, let's say because of his totally no income not things not so economically favoring things he might not have ever borrowed itself so all these guys come into new to credit so there is a good possibility of identifying based on their future and everything to give them the credit versus trying to solve for a subprime segment which is where probably these are the folks who have defaulted largely and they don't have a repayment disciplines and what not so that is what we try to avoid now in a country like india probably there are like the bureau penetration itself is roughly about 30% for the entire indian population i would say that there's at least 400 million plus folks who are eligible to get a credit and they have not got that or not established their bureau records because of various reason either they have just joined as a first job today versus somebody who never had a worthiness to borrow from a formal trade sector itself so there is that population is pretty large so going after that particular population is probably what's the focus what we have today versus going and solve for a subprime category where somebody has already been defaulting and then now you're trying to figure out the reason for his defaulting and then trying to provide a credit i don't think that is what we are trying to specialize here yeah Okay and how is the way in which you are going after new to credit what strategy are you using to tap that segment no st- strategy is simple right so they do come out of the platform we don't when we are advertising about our products or when these customers come in we don't necessarily say that target saying that we need specific this set of customers or even for the most of this uh, ad agencies or the ad networks i don't think they have a way to differentiate whether somebody is a new to credit or he is not a new to credit it's up to the lender to decide once these people do come on to the platform but having said that this population is pretty large and increasingly there's a good amount of customers who are coming onto the platform and we are able to assess again the assessment remains very fundamentally same so looking at what is his current job and everything need, need not be if he's a 24 year old who has just graduated joined his job probably for last 6 months he is working and he shows a pretty much credibility then why not lend him there i don't think is a specific strategy because i don't think the strategy would work at the marketing or an advertising level let's say we are sponsors of rcb today so digital sponsor for all for rcb official digital partner for rcb now how do they segregate saying that whether it is a ntc who is watching the cricket or it is a 700 plus i don't think that particular thing works when people on come on to the platform 
I think that's where your ability to solve for it what actually matters. What is your customer acquisition roadmap? You are spending on both performance and brand. Like the Royal Challenger IPL yeah. team you're sponsoring is obviously for building brand value, top of the mind recall. Do you, you also spend on performance marketing? Oh, yeah. So we do spend on performance marketing. So only good mm. thing what is happening with us is close to about 40-45% of my customers are organic. Because wow. since we are a early mover advantage what we had, so already there are close to about 40 million plus customers data or what we have underwritten in this last four, four and a half years of our journey. And there's a huge word of mouth that happens of these people. Second is the overall SEO that you have to work upon. These are the norms, right? But it's not that we have cracked some rocket science in terms of anything on the performance marketing. For everyone, I would say that performance marketing is what you can optimize is anywhere between 10 to 15%. One, one company which does it maybe 15% better than the other company. It's a good number and one should not forget about it. But the biggest advantage of getting the organic traffic also depends on the number of customers what you have served. It's as simple, right? So today, I don't think probably Ola or Uber are doing any ads. So I don't think they're doing any ads because they have such a large user customer base and they have created a certain brand name. It's a word of mouth. The know-how about it. My friend is using it. My dad is using it. So why don't I use it? So that particular thing comes only based on the base customer base what you are carrying it but of course we are not at reach that stage of ola or uber but we do also need to spend on the performance marketing and whatnot so about 55 percent around or 60 percent in some months is the paid traffic what we get it but 40 45 percent for us is organic and that keeps our cost pretty low and not to entirely rely on digital channels like facebook google if somebody is having that strategy i think it's going to hit hard a lot because there you don't have a control on the CAC. Imagine the number of unicorns that has been created in this year. So in the last one year, and there will be similar amount or double the amount what will be created in next one year, one or two years. And when all this kind of money is pumped in, everyone is going for the customers and they are going to bid on Facebook's, Google's of the world, uh, which is a very natural choice to boost up the customer acquisition and whatnot. But in that way, only these two companies gain a lot. And because of the entire bidding process, your CACs are always going to go high. So you, one needs to have a very diversified strategy, not just rely on these channels. These channels are very sexy. You just put your credit card, you can get any number of customers in front of you, but have control on the cost what it is spending so one needs to go for uh, multiple strategic integrations strategic partnerships in utilizing i'll give you one example right so we have let's say we have close to about 25 30 integrations across with many of the channels interesting channels are payments banks so the payment banks by nature of the license they don't lend we are the lending partner with Fino payments bank which does its particular role but there are customers who come and then look for a loan and we serve the loans for that particular customers who are looking for the loan. So now that becomes a very strategic partnerships. We are not intending to do any payments business and for payments bank, of course, they don't intend to lend but, and also their licenses don't permit them to do the lending and we become the lending partner over there. So now those strategic partnerships are the ones which comes and saves on your CAC rather than, as I told, you just plugging your credit card here and there. Got it. Okay. What is the need for you to raise more equity? Like you are planning to raise more equity, right? What is the need for that money? No, the way it works is there is certain leverage at which you can lend. Regulator allows you to, for an NBFC, regulator allows to leverage 1 is to 7x. As in, if your equity is $100, you can borrow up to another $700 and then you can lend. 
although that is the limit what regulator defines it it's not the limit what market is comfortable with for some companies that particular leverage can be just about 1 is to 2x some companies it can go up to 3x and let's say a very mature company like bajaj finance may be operating at about 5x so nobody has hit that 7x it all depends on uh, and this is on the unsecured lending part what i'm talking about very secure like housing loan and all you could easily see about 4 5x of a leverage even for us very small size companies for an unsecured lending it's at about 3x 3.5x my number now once you hit such limits then you have to infuse equity so that you are able to serve and build larger loan books onto your platforms all right so that is one thing second thing is does that mean that one has to keep raising funds every 2 years every 3 years it need not be because as the company's brand value and as the company's existence their ratings everything improve your leverage also keeps increasing all right so the company which is today at about 3x kind of a leverage with next 2 3 years of a consistent performance they can easily kind of be operating at about 4x or 5x right so that's the reason why the nbfcs or fintechs or even to the extent of banks why they raise while they keep raising it but banks have a different nature of managing this because they also have a deposit taking abilities so they take the customer deposits and they basically use that deposit to further onward lend it so they did not actually go for this equity raise always there are uh, this particular deposit taking is also dominated by only few banks there are many other banks which are yet to create that kind of a brand value so that people go and start saving over there so they also have to go hit the market to raise equities yeah uh, what is your number multiple of equity that So we are at about 3x plus. So that is where the comfort is there in the industry for us. But yeah, so if I have to go for 4x, then I'm over leveraging myself, and market also starts restricting there at that level. But there are we are at about 3x plus. But you don't need money for customer acquisition. Like the, each customer acquired is profitable for you. Like the cost of acquisition <laughs> is less than the amount you earn from that. customer we are generally profitable in some months we are profitable at 1.2x of the loan as in like generally on the second loan we are definitely pro- profitable but what portion of the second loan from the customer so even if let's say i have acquired about 100 people at certain months if 20 people take the second loan out of that 100 i break even on that 100 people so in certain other months it could be 30 right so it ranges between for us is like 1.2 to 1.3 the 3x of the number of loans what they take from here at exactly just on the one loan cohort we don't make money but at 1.2x of the loan even if the 20% repeats or 30% repeats we are definitely breaking even from that cohort but having said that we have about 80% repeat ratio so that's beyond that particular number amazing amazing if you like the founder thesis podcast then do check out our other shows on subjects like marketing technology career advice books and drama visit the podium.in that is t h e p o d i u m .in for a complete list of all our shows